0: in Romans, Romans 4 this morning, and we're going to continue. Uh, this is one of our later lessons in our series on storyline. And I want to encourage you, uh, you're more than welcome to go back and listen to some of the prior weeks. Uh, those are on our websites, on our podcast, Apple Podcasts, and uh, you're more than welcome to catch up on some of these. And I want to do a little bit of review this morning, and so I'd encourage you to participate here as we review some of the things we talked about Last week. As you know, this week is part two of a study we've done on the theme of the land of Israel in the whole scriptures, okay? And so last week we kind of covered the Old Testament side of it. This week we'll cover the New Testament side of what the Bible says about the land. So let's do a little bit of review. It's going to cause you to dig back in your mind a week, okay? And I know a lot of things have happened, but let's try and engage here. The first thing we talked about in our lesson last week is that sometimes we think land became theologically significant in Genesis 12 when God gives that promise to Abraham. But we talked about last week that land or territory became significant in the eyes of God or was significant in the eyes of God in what chapter of Genesis? If it didn't first start in chapter 12, what do we talk about? You don't have to be exact on the chapter. You could talk about the section of scripture when land becomes significant in the story of the Bible. What do we talk about there? We talked about how the garden of, all right, y'all, you gotta help me out, all right? I spent hours working on this. It's a little bit of a letdown when y'all just look at me like a bunch of squirrels, okay? Or deer in oncoming traffic. Land became significant with the Garden of Eden, right? And okay, so we got the Garden of Eden. Then we also talked about how the promise to Abraham to bless the nations was God's, and I called it a counterstrike. I like that term. I don't know if you do, but God's counterstrike against the sins that happened at the Tower of Babel, right? Because the Tower of Babel, what happened? We have one people that are scattered throughout the nations. We have people who are in one area, who are in that area for the wrong reason, to worship themselves. And through Abraham, God is going to regather all of the worlds to one area to worship who? God, right? And then we talked about this. Um, It's often mistakenly said that the the Israelites never possessed the land. And we talked about last week, three different times in scripture, three different leaders of Israel, that it is clearly and explicitly said that they captured all of the land. There's three of them. If you throw out a name, you're likely to guess one of them. Who are some of the people that we can remember, leaders that God enabled to capture the land for his people? Joshua. Who is that? Was that John? Good call. Joshua. So it's said in Joshua 11 and I think 23 or 24 that he possessed all of the land that God promised Abraham. Who else? Who else is a conqueror that's capturing land and defeating enemies in the scriptures? David. Who is that? Robert? The three people. I don't know. It's somewhere. Hey, now we're participating. I like it. I like it. All right. So one more. Like David, there's another person, and I love this one. If you want to look it up, 1 Kings 4, 21 through like 25 or something like that, there's one other person that is said to possess the land, and it even uses the same geographical markers in Genesis 15. Who is that king? Solomon, that's right. So Joshua and David and Solomon all possessed the land, okay? Okay. And so we ended the lesson last week going to Ezekiel 47 and 48. And Ezekiel 47 48 is really interesting because God is talking about how he's going to divvy up the land when, uh, when, in this end time. And maybe the first people who are hearing that are thinking that God's talking about when they return from captivity in Babylon. But we start reading that passage and it's calling back imagery from the Garden of Eden and then we also talk about how Ezekiel 48, the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel, says that in the new land, in the city of that land, its name will be the Lord is there. And that is, shows up in Revelation 21, and we see that that new city is the new Jerusalem. And so Ezekiel really is not just talking about the land that they would capture after leaving Babylon, but that future land that God has promised for his people. And then interestingly, Ezekiel says this, that it would not just be Jews that would be able to possess the land, but he says, what other class of people can now have a chunk of this land? Not just Jews by birth, but who? Strangers is the term in Ezekiel, right? Non-Jews, that's a term for foreigners, okay? Okay. And so this, this all prepares us as we watch the storyline there and we covered other things, how God told Abraham that he would possess the gates of his enemies, which are foreign cities, right? So Abraham actually, got, in God's mind, was going to conquer the earth. And so it prepares us for these significant changes and expansions of this biblical promise. And so the question we have to answer today is how do those changes occur? What do those changes look like? If you've been with us through our series, we started out in the early part of the series with the verse in um, 2 Corinthians 1.20 that says all of the promises of God are yes and amen in who? All of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so that prepares us that if all the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ and all of the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ, then we should be prepared for the fact that Christ is going to affect this promise of land and he's not gonna nullify it. No, what we're gonna see today is he improves it, he expands it, okay? So what I want us to do today is I I don't want us just to, to understand what the Bible says about a topic. If you understand what we've been covering this series, I wanna equip you as a Christian to read the Old Testament and know how it applies to you as I think all of us are Gentile Christians. And all of the scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. So how is it profitable, these promises of land in the different passages of land? Number two, I want you to anticipate the heavenly inheritance God has reserved for you. And number three, I wanna equip you with this macro understanding of the land to better discern Biblical prophecy. Okay? So here's the first thing I want us to talk about. I want us to see that Christ expands and he improves the promise of land. Christ expands and he improves the promise of land. Christ has done this for everything else, hasn't he? He expanded and improved the sacrificial system. Christ was an improvement on the temple. Christ is changing everything in the Old Testament. And he, in some ways, is giving us continuity with the Old Testament. But I want you to see two different ways that the promise of land is expanded or improved. Here's the first one. What I want you to see in Romans 4 and some other passages is that the promise of land is expanded to benefit more people. It's expanded to benefit more people. Now, we're going to get to Romans 4 here in a second. Romans 4 is really the the fullest treatment on this idea but I want us to understand that we know in in Abraham there is this promise to a national people, to a people who are of this nation by birth, by descendancy, right? But we know, right, that Christ has fulfilled the Abrahamic promise of blessing the nations, as we talked about in previous weeks, and we'll cover here in a minute, by expanding Israel to not just include Jews, but to include Gentiles as well. Some people mistakenly think that the church has replaced Israel. I don't like that language. I would rather say that the scriptures teach that Israel has been expanded to include the church. Do you see the difference? The church has not replaced Israel, but Israel has been expanded to include the church. We know, as we've talked about in other lessons, that Gentiles, and we'll talk about these terms, they've been grafted in. They are fellow heirs. And in Galatians, the Gentiles are described as the Israel of God. I want you to see in Romans eleven seventeen 17, they are grafted in, right? And if some of the branches be broken off, thou being a wild olive tree, he's talking about the Gentiles, are grafted in among them. Who are these if you read the context? Oh, man. Those are the Jews, right? So the wild olive tree is the Gentiles and they are grafted in among the Jews and you are partaking of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. What is that root and fatness talking about? It's the blessings. So what is Paul laying the case for in Romans 11? He's saying that those who are Gentiles, who are believers by faith, if you read the whole context, they by faith are now grafted into this olive tree, Israel, And they are partaking of the blessings of being part of that olive tree. So really, like I said, Israel is being expanded to include the church. Then we also see in Ephesians 2 and 3, this section of Ephesians 2 and 3 is bracketed by this idea of the old covenant promises. And what Ephesians is going to show us is that prior to Christ, Gentiles were strangers. They were outside of the old covenant promises, right, Rick? But in Christ, these Gentiles who were once strangers are now going to be fellow heirs. And he's going to use very explicit language. So we see in Ephesians 2.12, he says, you, who's that talking about? He's talking about Gentiles, were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Well, that's talking about a nation, isn't it? Right, a common. And strangers from the covenants of promise. Well, who are these covenants for? Well, Abraham and Moses and David, right? Having no hope and without God in the world. And then he expands on that for several verses, and he brackets that idea in Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Now, I talked about this several weeks ago in our lesson on covenant, but remember the idea here, okay? The the Jewish thought about how Abraham would bless the nations is this, and I think this is actually how some people mistakenly view it. God would pour out his blessings in the picture of Israel, and the picture of Israel would then pour it into the picture of the nations. But what we're seeing in this idea of fellow heirs is that the nations are not a uh, sub-blessing of the Jews. They are blessed alongside of the Jews. That God is reconstituting, creating a new family of God that is not defined by birth, but by faith. And these, these Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are participants with the Jews in the promise. They are of the same body. Listen, I don't know how else to read that phrase other than to say that God is reconstituting Israel. It's a new body that is including Gentiles by faith and partakers of his promise. Well, what promise? Well, I assume he's talking either about Abraham or Moses, which really are both reflecting on the same promise promises in who? In Christ by the gospel, okay? So what we see is that because of Christ, Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're of the same body. They're partakers of the old covenant promises that were referred to in chapter 2, verse number 12. And then I want you to look at Romans 4. Romans 4. It'll also be on the screen. In Romans 4, if you read the book of Romans— The number one controversy in the book of Romans is this idea of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. The Romans, the Jews within the Romans, are very uh, confused about how Israel and the Jews should relate to the Gentiles who've received Christ by faith. There's different issues going on, they think the Gentiles should celebrate some of the Jewish holidays. And they're also not happy with the idea that the Gentiles are somehow partaking the same promises as the Jews. And Paul is defending this. And in chapter four, the broader argument he's making is this, that Abraham did not possess the promises of God because of his nationality. Abraham possessed the promises of God by what? Faith. And he's using Abraham as an example, that God's plan has always been to bless people through their faith in God's promises, not through their birth origin. And so he's saying, Christ has not nullified the law, Christ has fulfilled the law. And he's gonna show us this in several different things. So he's talking about his faith. And then he says, after his faith, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. Now, this is interesting. What, a, what Mo, or, sorry, Paul is arguing is that Abraham was righteous before he was marked off as a Jew. He was righteous before he was a Jew. And, and so he says that he might be the father of all the Jews that believe. No, of everybody that believes, right? Though they be not circumcised. Who's that referring to? The Gentiles, right? That righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision. So now he's going even further. He's saying the father of circumcision is father to them who are not of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, yet uncircumcised. So he's arguing that Abraham is the father, not just of the Jews, but of all those who would believe in Christ, even those who are non-Jews, okay? So then Paul shifts and he says, if Abraham, if the children of Abraham are not just the national Jews who are of a certain biological descent, then the promises that God gave to Abraham are not just applied to biological relatives, they are applied to those who have received the same faith that Abraham received. Here's the next verse. For the promise that he should be heir of the world. So this is significant in two ways. He's referencing the land promise, but he's also pointing us forward to the fact that the land promise was not just about a rectangle in the Middle East that the land promise was really the beginnings of God bringing his glory to all of the world. The whole earth is his footstool, he says. And so Abraham is really um, giving that land promise to all those who would receive. Look at this. This this promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed. Who is his seed? Well, it's the Jews, right? Right? through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, that's the Jews again, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Here's Here's what Paul is arguing. He's saying, if God gave the land to Jews who did not believe in Christ, then he is a liar. His promise is made of none effect. But instead... He says, because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there's no transgression. Therefore, he's giving the promise to those who are of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be made sure to all the seed. Who's all the seed? Well, not those of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. So Romans 4 is arguing that the family of Abraham, the nation of Abraham is reconstituted to include all of those who have faith in Christ, the blessings that God promised Abraham, the blessing of the land is expanded to include the whole world, and that blessing is then given to all of those who come by faith to Jesus Christ. That's the argument of Romans 4. What I also want you to see this is is I I think this will help us understand the backdrop to Romans 9 through 11. If If you remember this or have heard this, Romans 9 through 11 is a classic proof text for Calvinism, that God has predestined some to wrath and predestined some to grace. But if you understand that at the heart of Romans is this, this tension between the old covenant and the new covenant, you recognize Romans 9 through 11 is not talking about all of those who are saved. It's, it's answering the question, why on earth did God set aside people who are Jews by birth And then in the mind of the person arguing with Paul in Romans, it's as if he neglected his promise. Friend, what's interesting to me is that many of those who think that the land is reserved for the Jews still today have the same line of thinking that Paul is arguing against in Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9 through 11, he's saying, no, God is not unfaithful to his promise, First of all, God is sovereign, and if God expands the promise to include the Gentiles, who are you, O man, he says in Romans 9, to question him? And then he says, I'm not being unfaithful to my promise because the promise has always been to those who receive him by faith, okay? So the first way that Christ expands this promise is expanding the people. The second way he does is expanding the territory and including a heavenly city, okay? So what we see in the New Testament is that in, in some of this language was in the Old Testament, as we talked about, but we see in the New Testament that, that Christ is expanding this promise to include all of the earth in a heavenly city. We talked about this last week, that it was always in the plan of God for the nation of Israel to bring God's glory to all of the nations and to possess all of the nations, right? Abraham was said to possess the gate of his enemies, and we talked about Psalm two a couple weeks ago and Psalm two is written to an Israelite king. And Psalm two ends this way, to the king. He says, ask of me, God is saying this, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. God had always indicated that it would be the Israelites king's right to conquer the earth by faith and bring God's glory to all of the earth. He even says, Ask of me and I'd give it to you. The only reason you haven't gotten it is because you don't have enough faith, right? And so Jesus and Paul and others pick up on this idea in Romans 4:13, right? That Abraham should be heir of the world. And then Christ in his sermon on the kingdom, and we read the Beatitudes, recognizing that in the Beatitudes, Christ is saying two things. How do we enter the kingdom? And what do we receive as the blessings of the kingdom, right? So blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, how do they enter the kingdom? And what do they receive? They shall be filled. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in those beatitudes, Christ takes a psalm from Psalm 37, I think verse 11, and he says this. Blessed are the Jews, for they shall inherit the earth. No, he says, blessed are the meek. So Christ says, how do you enter the kingdom? It's through meekness, not through pride. You have to submit to the power of Christ. And when you do, and when you enter that kingdom, you'll inherit the whole earth. So Christ is reiterating that God is going to give not just the land, a rectangle in the Middle East, but the whole earth to his people. And he's now changing the requirements. He's expanding them, not to include people by birth origin, but people who have meekness and submission to the power of God, right? So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But it gets even more clear because in the book of Hebrews... The writer of Hebrews, whether it was Luke or whether it was Paul or Apollos, whoever it was, right? The writer of Hebrews begins to say this, that he begins to say that the patriarchs were not looking for an earthly city or an earthly land. They actually, even in the patriarchal times, understood God was gonna give them something better, a heavenly city. Let's read Hebrews 11, talking about Abraham He looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Well, you understand that the city of the land of Canaan was not built directly by God. It was built by the Canaanites. Even God says that in his promises to Israel. Verse 16 talks about all the patriarchs. For they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, the real question is, what is this city, this heavenly city, this heavenly country that God has prepared for the patriarchs and, of course, all of those who are in God's family by faith? Well, that city is none other than the new Jerusalem that is described to us in Revelation And that new Jerusalem is part of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, right? And so here's this heavenly city which is part of a broader heavenly land, an earthly land that God is preparing for his people that is described in Revelation 21. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, now this is interesting. When you read Old Testament quotations in the New Testament, you have to ask yourself, why did he choose to quote this verse? And what was it saying in its original context? So God says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. What do you think in the Old Testament this is talking about? The temple and the tabernacle. It's in Leviticus, the end of Leviticus. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people and God himself shall be with them. So he's saying that in the same way I made my presence known among the Jews with the tabernacle, now I am bringing my presence from heaven to earth through the new Jerusalem and I will be with them and be their God And we understand that the people who are in this new Jerusalem are not just Jews by birth, but it is those who in Revelation 21, 15 and 22, seven through eight are written in the Lamb's book of life and who have overcome, which is a key word in the book of Revelation, which is, which is meaning this, this is for you, y'all. This is our promise. This will be true of us someday. That we will dwell in this new Jerusalem, and we will be with God, and there will be no temple, for we shall see his face. This is our heavenly city. And it reminds us, like Abraham, we are not looking for an earthly country. Yes, God may bless you with houses and land and prosperity, but that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for this thing. And it, and it reminds us to persevere by faith in this life when you have very little, and even when you have very much, but to make faith the center of your life. Now, why, why is this a big deal? Why do we care about what the Bible says about the land promise of the Old Testament? Is this just a way for us to know and be right about something? No, this has several important ramifications. Number one, understanding the land promise as Christians helps us understand more of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? Well, if, if we as Christians think that the land has nothing to do with us, it's just for this ethnic people group, how on earth are we edified by Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17, and the book of Exodus, and the book of Joshua? What does that have to say to us? Well, that God someday will just give the land to another people? No. What that says to us is it has something to say about our inheritance, and our salvation. What I want you to have, church family, is the tools and the equipment you need to read your Bible straight through and know what it's talking about without the help of some fancy-schmancy scholar or preacher to help you understand it. I've heard it been said that, that Canaan is a picture of the victorious Christian life. And I don't think that's true. I think when you read the Bible and you see references to the land and to Canaan, knowing what we know about the story of the Bible, you can read those Old Testament passages and recognize this, that Canaan is a picture of the inheritance we receive in Christ. Now, some people are like, well, does that mean we have to go fight and conquer and earn that land? Oh, no, friend. You haven't read your Old Testament carefully if you're wondering that. Because though there are many wars and battles that God's people by faith had to work through to possess the land, every part of possessing the land, every scripture about that is so clear who it was that ultimately was winning the battle. Joshua 1.13 says this, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you saying, the Lord, your God, hath given you rest and hath given you this land. as we read Joshua and we read these different passages, they remind us of, of the two seemingly paradoxical truths about our salvation. That God is the one who gives us our salvation. But we must believe in his promise. And we must act on that faith for faith without works is dead being alone. And the same dynamic shows up in the history of the nation of Israel. God said, I'll give you the land. But they had to walk in the boundaries of Canaan and pull out their sword and take the land, didn't they? And that's why Revelation uses this term for Christian, overcomers. It's those people who act on their faith in this life knowing that God is not a liar. He will deliver on his promises. So the direct application of these Abrahamic promises is the inheritance God has reserved for us in Christ, the new Jerusalem and the other benefits of our salvation being joint heirs with Christ, being grafted in to that olive tree of Israel. Number two, it helps us understand biblical prophecy. Friend, you don't need charts to understand biblical prophecy. They might be helpful, but what you need is the Bible. And when we properly understand how the Bible shows us this developing theme of the land, it'll better equip you to actually read the book of Revelation and start thinking about what you're reading and understanding it through the lens of Scripture, not the lens of a chart. There are a lot of things in Revelation that we would be tempted to misinterpret if we misunderstand the Bible's message about the land. We will misinterpret some of the passages about the temple imagery in Revelation. We know the temple is no more, the temple is Christ. And so we have to understand what Revelation is trying to say there. We, we misunderstand things about the 144,000 from the 12 tribes. And we start thinking that no, no, these are all Jews and they're just preaching to Jews. But when we understand the whole message of the New Testament, we think, no, it's not like God has gone back on his promises and somehow reversed, no. John in the book of Revelation is using the same language Paul did in the book of Galatians, the Israel of God. It helps us understand these things. It helps us as Christians not to contradict our belief in the imminent return of Christ. There there are folks who will say things like this. I'm directly quoting from a doctoral dissertation from a school that teaches dispensationalism. That Christ is nearer to returning now because there is a national Israel since the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. That sounds really good, but that directly contradicts what Jesus said, that no man knows the day or the hour, that Christ's return is not something we can predict based on political events in the Middle East. No, Christ's return is imminent. We don't read the signs. What did Jesus say? That there will always be wars and rumors of wars. And so when we misinterpret this land promise, it causes us to contradict our belief in the imminent return of Christ. Number three, it will free us to have better discernment about political issues. Or I would say maybe Christian liberty around political issues. I'll say this up front. There are a lot of, issues that are black and white for Christians. Can I get an amen for that? When it comes to voting, there are a lot of issues that are black and white. Abortion, black and white, right? There's all sorts of other things. Morality, black and white. But what I wanna I want push us as a church is to recognize is that we should not go beyond what is written, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. That we should not bind what God has not bound. And we should not say that Christians should always vote for this when God has not said that. And I think one of the issues that people say is that Christians, I've heard this my whole life, Christians should always vote for pro-Israel leg- legislation or candidates. How many of you have heard that? I know more of you have heard that. Um, and here's where that, that's based on a, on, a, on a great desire to honor the scripture, right? What does God say? That those who bless Abraham will be blessed by him, right? So it's like, hey, let's honor God's word. I'm all for that. But what we're missing when we say things, or people say things like that, thinking that the scripture is somehow, when it says that we should bless Abraham and his family, that we're supposed to vote for pro-Israel legislation or candidates, that the Bible's already told us how that blessing happens. And it shows us in Galatians 3.8. When God said that he would bless the nations, Paul says very clearly what that was pointing forward to is that God would justify the heathen through faith. It's not pointing to some like mysterious blessing on America because America's backed Israel. Now, I'm not, I'm not against that at all. Actually, I'm quite pro-Israel in my thinking politically, but I don't think the Bible requires me to be. And I know that sounds really like heretical, but I'm just saying that the scripture tells us how God blesses the nations through Abraham. He blesses them by justifying the heathen through faith. And so what this helps us to do is not to say that we should just vote against Israel. I mean, if if you're asking me, I'd probably rather back Israel than Hamas and all the other bad guys over there. But I'm saying that we should not bind what God has not bound. and We should not restrict what God has not restricted. And frankly, Israel's not a great friend to Christians either. There are persecuted Palestinian Christians in the land of Israel. So I'm just saying that we ought to be careful Though we may have pragmatic and political reasons to vote for Israel, that's fine. All of us can have that, right? I have pragmatic reasons for who I'm going to vote for school board in a couple months. That's fine, but I can't require you to vote for the same people I'm voting for based on scripture. I have no scripture to justify that, right? And so God has made it very clear that the way God blesses the nations through Abraham is not this political thing, this political dynamic. Otherwise, this wouldn't have shown up for like, I don't know, several hundred years while Israel didn't have an actual nation, right? It's saying that God is gonna bless those nations through the gospel. That is how God has blessed us through Abraham. He has given us the seed of Abraham, who we have faith in him, and because of our faith in him, we're grafted into that olive tree, and we receive a heavenly inheritance. Here's the last thought, and it's not on your handout, but I'm gonna get to it nonetheless. I think this understand the land also reminds us, and you can write this down, of the importance of historical theology. Theology. Now, that's just a fancy term for this. And I'll talk about this even a little bit more, kind of, in our sermon tonight. As Christians, we should default to distrusting an interpretation of the Bible that's new. The Spirit of God has indwelt Christians for 2,000 years. So, if the Spirit of God is not powerful enough to help Christians see the truth for 1,800 of those years, we should generally distrust that view of a promise of scripture, right? Well, this idea, though most of us probably grew up in churches and circles that taught this idea that national Israel is going to be reconstituted in the end times, do your study on it. It didn't show up at the very earliest until the mid-1800s and really wasn't popular until the nation of Israel was reconstituted in the 1950s. So I'm just saying that this reminds us, and I think all of us ought to think on this level, and I, I don't, I don't think this is often taught, that if I'm interpreting the Bible in a way that's completely foreign to generations of Christianity, I think I might have it wrong. I'm gonna trust the old dudes, like the guys who've been in the grave for a couple hundred years. And I'm not saying they all get it right or we should just go back to the church fathers and listen to everything they say. They say some weird stuff. Trust me, I have some of their books but I'm saying that if, if what we're believing about the Bible is completely foreign to 1,800 years of Christianity, we ought to check ourselves. And that goes not just for this, but for many other things, all right? I've run out of time, so let's pray and ask God to bless the service.